drumming, the drums rum coming everywhere. So prepare, say a prayer, send the word, send the word to beware. We'll be over, we're coming over, and we won't come back till it's over, over there, over there, over there. Send the word, send the word over. Mark Bowden author of Black Hawk Down, the best-selling account of the 1993 battle between U.S. Army Rangers and Somali militia, spent five years researching the Tet invasion. He conducted more than 50 interviews with Vietnamese and Americans who engaged in combat with others who were reporting on it. Wei is Bowden's first combat-related work since Black Hawk Down. Filmmakers Michael Mann and Michael DeLuca plan to develop a TV miniseries based on Bowden's new book. Welcome to the program, Mark. Thank you, Katie. Describe what happened in January 31, 1968, and why was the Pentagon utterly caught by surprise? Well, what happened was the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong launched simultaneous attacks on every city and town, basically, every big one in South Vietnam. And the largest of these offensives and the most successful was in the city of Hue, where the enemy succeeded in taking, basically taking the whole city uh, almost without a fight. The, um, you know, American military command in the South Vietnamese were caught completely by surprise. And I would say, you know, for a number of reasons, I guess, first, we have to give credit to the NVA and the Viet Cong, who were skillful uh, at assembling these forces without tripping any alarms. I think um, the, the success also reflects the level of popular support that the communist forces had in particularly the rural areas around these cities. Because I don't think in the case of Hue, for instance, where 10,000 enemy troops amassed, uh, that you could do something like that without tripping an alarm if the people who live in that area aren't fairly supportive of your effort. Well, how did the North's attempted infiltration of South Vietnam support the invasion? How did the South's failure to support the invasion help defeat it? Well, the, if I understand your question correctly, I mean, the North Vietnamese Army was infiltrating down the Ho Chi Minh Trail throughout the Vietnam War. In fact, most of the Viet Cong battalions were being led by North Vietnamese regulars. Uh, they were supplied and, and, and guided by, you know, very professional uh, military. Uh, the Communist Party in Hanoi had anticipated that the people of South Vietnam would rise up in support of the revolution when they saw these NBA and Viet Cong troops in the cities. And that, of course, didn't happen. And I think that was, you know, that doomed the efforts of the Tet Offensive militarily because the, uh, even though in the city of Hue, for instance, they were able to put like 10,000 troops in the city they were, um, over the long haul, no match for the firepower of the American forces in the South Vietnamese. 
Um, yeah, the, the vision that keeps going through my mind are the news reports watching the um, helicopters coming in uh, in battalion force, dropping troops into the uh, line of action. And that, that just sticks in my mind. Uh, as a young person coming up, I was still in grade school when Vietnam uh, was actually taking place. So as a bystander uh, and a young person at that time, all I had to go on was what I was hearing from my parents, my friends' parents. I mean, we lost a lot of young men in that battle. Where do you think the initial disbelief and denial of commanding officers came into play? Because it was obvious that we were, you know, this was, this was not a joke. This was actually happening. Yeah, it, you know, it certainly was actually happening. And, and to the Marines and um, Army soldiers who were caught up in this battle, it was very real and very terrifying. And at least in the early stages, they were greatly outnumbered and were, were in great danger of uh, being overrun and wiped out. Um, the, the disbelief came uh, at the higher levels of the military command where General William Westmoreland, for instance, who was the top commander of American forces in Vietnam, essentially denied reports that there was a significant offensive going on in Hue. He estimated, and this is even days after the city was taken, he estimated that there were only about 500 enemy troops in Hue. He was off by a factor of 20. Uh, he had ample reports from the CIA and from his field commanders about what was actually happening. But for his own reasons, General Westmoreland chose to insist that there was nothing significant going on. And, and that attitude, frankly, got a lot of young Americans killed. Yes, it did. Why do you, just in your own opinion, why do you, why do you think that he did this? I mean, what could possibly have been his motivation? Was he that afraid of failure? I think that's a big part of it. I, I think General Westmoreland was strongly wedded to his working theory of the battlefield. He believed that the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese were incapable of mounting an attack on this scale. And so when reports started coming in that they had in fact done so, he chose to assume that the reports were incorrect because he had more faith in his own vision of what was going on. I think that, you know, he's not the first person in command or, or leader to sort of welcome information that supports his theory of what's happening and, and sort of discard information that disagrees with it. But in this case, the consequences were, were tragic. They were very tragic. We lost a lot, a lot of people in that battle. Was it hard in your research to have both sides, the South and the North Vietnamese, as well as the Marines, talk about this event? I noticed you kind of looked really at the American accounts of the fighting. Sure. And, it, and obviously, you know, the book that I've written is primarily for American audiences. And I, you know, had no difficulty locating and interviewing many uh, American veterans of the battle. Uh, it was a little more difficult to find and interview people in Vietnam. I mean, for one reason, you know, uh, it's sort of pretty difficult to call people who live in villages in, in Vietnam. I mean, I had to go over, and it's a fairly expensive process to I'm get sure. there and, 
hire translators and everything else. So I did a lot of it, and I'm proud of the um, extent of reporting I was able to do in Vietnam. But there's no question it was a lot easier for me to report here in the United States. You should be proud of yourself. That's an extreme endeavor that you uh, went through in order to obtain the interviews. Um, The young communist extremists were systematically rounding up and executing hundreds, maybe even thousands of white civil servants, from professors to policemen during the occupation. What was the main reasoning for that, since they were also looking for support? Yeah, I think they, you know, we have to remember that this was a civil war in, in Vietnam and the uh, North Vietnamese troops, I mean, we, we call them North Vietnamese, they, they call themselves Vietnamese. And to them, the uh, folks in South Vietnam who allied themselves with the United States were traitors. And they, when they took the city of Hue, they wanted to make an example of uh, you know what what the price would be for those who were in their eyes traitors to Vietnam, the collaborators with the Saigon regime, which they saw as nothing more than a front for the United States. So that was their rationale, and I agree with you. I mean, ultimately, the tactics uh, ended up really hurting their chances of gaining support from the people of Hue because they had, I think you know, uh, drastically overestimated the enthusiasm of the people in that city to support their efforts. It's almost like they just didn't trust anybody. They weren't going to. Well, I think, well, I think, you know, they, they entered the city with the false expectation that they would be received warmly by the people who play. Um, And that was, you know, they were as guilty of, um, misunderstanding the situation as General Westmoreland was. Uh, they, you know, they had a set of expectations about what would happen when they came into Hue, and uh, those things did not happen. And just as General Westmoreland had a set of expectations about what was possible in the battlefield, and uh, it turns out that he was completely wrong. Uh, you know, so both sides really miscalculated in a big way. Do you think there are any similarities with our current conflicts in the Middle East and Vietnam? And if you do, what do you think we've not learned? Well, I I don't think that there, um, you know, you can draw direct parallels between what's going on in the Middle East or in Afghanistan with what happened in, in Vietnam. Clearly, the cultures and the history and the situations are vastly different, but I do think that we as a country have a tendency periodically to really aggressively dumb ourselves down. Uh, And by that, I mean that we stop listening to people who are area experts who will, for instance, back in, who would have in 1950 or 1960, told President Eisenhower or President Kennedy or Johnson that the problem in Vietnam was not a simple matter of a monolithic communism spreading around the world, and that in fact the you know the Communist Party in Hanoi was not all that closely allied with the Soviet Union or uh, with China. That uh, in fact they were just as they were communists, they were also largely nationalists who were trying to 
who were fighting for the independence of their country, the whole landscape of what was going on in Vietnam was vastly more complicated than it was made out to be by those who uh, pushed for American involvement there. And if you read back, for instance, to you know, David Halberstam's book, The Best and the Brightest, he very uh, credibly shows how area experts, people who spoke the language, who knew the history, who understood the culture in Vietnam, were excluded from the debates and conversations that got the United States involved. I think that when we invaded Iraq, uh, we were, again, we dumbed ourselves down. We, we uh, went into Iraq with the expectation that the people of that country would rise up in support of us when we overthrew Saddam Hussein. And I think there were lots of people who were in a position to know better, who warned that when Saddam Hussein was gone, that country would fracture and that there would be all sorts of, you know, uh, hostilities that would ensue between various factions there, which we've now seen is exactly what happened. So I think, you know, and, and I could draw similar parallels to Afghanistan. And in both of these modern instances, we find ourselves, much as we did in Vietnam, kind of admired militarily without a clear exit strategy and without even a clear definition of what victory might look like. I can appreciate that. I enlisted during Desert Storm and Desert Shield. And I can tell you that there were a lot of conversations going around with the fear that at the time it would turn into another Vietnam. And that's what everyone referred to that as. I think mm -hmm. that our meeting has a lot to do with how we perceive what's going on overseas. Do you think that the media coverage that uh, has created the public questioning of official assurances, do you think that it's put a seed of doubt that any war is winnable? Without question. And I think that's an inevitable consequence of living in a democracy and in a free society. Um, you know, clearly, if, if we were living in a totalitarian state, you know, all of the media that we saw would be supportive of whatever the government effort was, and it would be very difficult for us to learn information that made us doubt the wisdom of, the, of our leaders. Thankfully, we don't live in that kind of society. But the downside of that is that it's difficult to sustain any kind of military action over a long period of time. And, and any time the United States intervenes overseas, they may intervene with a great deal of support in the beginning, but as the, as the cost of that involvement goes up and up and up, uh, support for war goes down and down and down. People get very depressed. They don't think that there's any chance of coming out with any resolution, I think, at that point. Well, I think, if, you know, an exception to that is uh, you mentioned Desert Storm. Uh, I, you know, there are people who have been critical of President uh, George H.W. Bush for halting the um, military effort at the border of uh, Iraq and just taking Kuwait back and not going in and, as people call it, finishing the job. In fact, I, I think President Bush was very wise to set limited achievable goals and they had a clear had a clear goal, a clear strategy, and a clear exit uh, point. Uh, and I think that you know that serves as a better example of how 
we ought to use our our military power. Well, and as a personal opinion, uh, when Clinton was in office, he was not a big proponent of the military. Matter of fact, he closed a lot of rates, which disabled a lot of our military to be able to advance and to progress. Um, mm-hmm. in, in your book, the Viet Cong commander in the Citadel uh, was convinced that the Marines were using civilians as human shields. Some of the Marines saw every civilian, no matter what they were, as a Charlie and worth killing. Uh, but interestingly, you kind of mentioned that Allied shelling and bombing probably killed more civilians than any other cause. Was this for the entire war or just for way? I can only speak, uh, Katie, with any authority about way. And, you know, the, there were plenty of ways to get killed in way in, in 1968 during this battle. Um, there's no question that the larger number of civilians were killed by bombing and shelling. It was, you know, I don't know that you can draw a moral equivalency um, between rounding people up and executing them or killing people inadvertently by bombing and shelling in a densely populated area. Uh, I don't think there is a moral equivalency, but for the poor people who are victimized, the result is exactly the same. Well, we've got a few minutes here, and I'd like for you to kind of expound on this if you could. The uh, nightly news picturing carnage in way sort of marked a pivot point in U.S. history. The war was, it was debated again and again about not, no longer being about how to win, but how to get out, how to leave. Uh, I don't think Americans ever fully trusted their leaders at that point after that. I mean, we had Lyndon B. Johnson announcing he wasn't going to run for election. Westmoreland was dismissed soon after the major offensive uh, plans were put on hold and finally dismissed. But the tragedy of way wasn't a pivot for the war. In fact, the dispute and the lies would only intensify under President Nixon and grind on for seven more years. Why was that? And please, feel free to take your time in answering that. <laughs> well, I think that the uh, you know, the people who were architects of the war in Vietnam, people like Robert McNamara uh, and others in the Johnson administration, um, had come to the realization by, after the Tet Offensive certainly, some of them much earlier, that the war was not going well and that we had very little chance of winning it. But it was difficult for them, it was difficult for President Johnson to abandon that effort because he had taken it on his shoulders along with a lot of the other initiatives of the Kennedy administration. And you have to remember back, you're maybe too young to have a personal memory of this, but when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, (laughs) but when Kennedy was assassinated, he, he was sort of elevated almost to a level of sainthood in this country. And Johnson, who inherited his administration, took it on himself to further all of the policies and programs uh, that Kennedy had initiated, and one of them was Vietnam. So I think Johnson felt very uh, committed to seeing that through. I I think that, frankly, the American people, even as the anti-war movement grew, most people in the United States hated the idea of, of walking away 
from the war in Vietnam. I mean, the very idea that the United States military could be fought to a standstill by these, uh, you know, peasants in a third world country, as they were seen, uh, was, you know, shocking. And, and a lot of Americans refused to believe it. Richard Nixon, you know, then was elected in 1968, and his strategy became basically uh, punishing the North Vietnamese uh, hard enough to force them to agree to negotiate a solution that would allow the United States to uh, exit the war without completely abandoning South Vietnam. And I think, you know, the game that Nixon played was to ignore a lot of evidence that the South Vietnamese government would be incapable of standing on its own without United States support. And so he continually drew down American forces over a period, as you say, of five or six years, all the while the fighting is continuing and casualties are mounting on both sides. But the determination of the Nixon administration was ultimately to get the United States out of Vietnam, and they ultimately did. And the consequences of that were, you know, then the collapse of the South Vietnamese government. But so a lot of it was just a, a refusal to face facts and do an about face. Uh, instead, the war became a protracted mess because of a reluctance to make a hard decision. And, and, and what it did is it just drew, drew out the, uh, the pain and suffering. I think you're probably right about that. I believe that the most famous TV coverage of the war's end was showing that the Americans uh, were crowding onto helicopters at the U.S. Embassy and fleeing for their lives. It seems that uh, to be the image burned into many minds uh, that lives will never be forgotten. Why is that? And was it because we saw the war as a defeat? Yes, and I think we are, we were right in seeing the war as a defeat. Uh, the United States entered Viet, the Vietnam War to support the government of South Vietnam uh, to establish a, a democratic state in the southern part of that country. And in that effort, we failed. Uh, we we pulled out, and within you know months of the American pullout, the South Vietnamese government collapsed completely. So, you know, the goals of the United States in Vietnam were not realized. We, we spent tremendous amounts of money and manpower and lost 58,000 American lives and killed about 1,000 Vietnamese and did not accomplish what we set out to do. In fact, the, the, the opposite happened. So, I mean, this was a stinging moment in American history. And certainly within the lifetimes of Americans, who witnessed the withdrawal from Vietnam, they had never seen the United States defeated and humiliated in that way. I think that's the reason why those images um, are burned into our memories and will always be remembered. Now, uh, as I had mentioned in the introduction, filmmakers Michael Mann and Michael DeLuca plan to develop a TV miniseries based on your new book. In a very... That's right. In, in a nutshell, what... What do you want people to take away from Way 1968? Well, first of all, I I think that the uh, it's a great story, and the the uh, heroism and sacrifice of the people who I've written about 
in this book uh, deserve to be remembered. Uh, so for that reason alone, I hope people come away from the book with a deep appreciation of, of what young Americans, and frankly, in some cases, what very brave young Vietnamese did to, uh, you know, to fight for what they thought was, was right. I also think that the story of Hue gives you a deeper understanding of the whole Vietnam conflict, because if, if you dig deeply enough into a single very dramatic event like this, I think you see all of the currents that played a role in the longer, bigger story of Vietnam uh, at play. And I think that uh, you, you better understand what the experience of the Vietnam War was like. And I think in a larger sense, you know, what I want people to take away from the book is a deeper understanding of what it means uh, when you go to war. Uh, this is in some ways a book just about battle itself. And when, when there is a battle like this, essentially, it's like a tear in the fabric of civilization. All of the rules go out the window, and a kind of bloodlust takes over. Uh, and we see that in the, in the executions and purges done by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. We see that in some of the indiscriminate killing that went on by uh, American troops and by South Vietnamese troops. And I, I think that that kind of bloodlust, that terrible uh, breakdown of and all the norms of civilization is really what battle is about. And I think that it ought to make us all the more determined to view war as an absolute last resort. Because very often when you go to battle, there are more losers than there are winners. I could not agree with you more. Mark, I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to have an interview with us today on uh, Community Cafe. Folks, we'd like to highly recommend this very accurate account of the Tet Offensive and Way in 1968. This is a fantastic book for any military enthusiast or for any Vietnam vet or their families. We hope that you'll pick up a copy as soon as you see it on the shelves grab one because if you're a military person, this is a book that will probably keep you on the edge of your seat for a while. Again, Mark, thank you so much. We appreciate your time thank today. You, Katie. I look forward to seeing the mini series when it comes out. Folks, again, this is Katie O'Neill, your host with Community Cafe, and until next time. And we are clear. <laughs> Great. Well done. Well, thank you very much. This was uh, a very extreme honor for me to be able to interview you today. I thank you. sincerely hope that I get to meet up with you at the book fair in Miami next month. I do Great. have a copy of your book, and I would be highly honored if you would sign it for me. Uh, I'd be delighted. Thank you, Katie. Thank you very much, and have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there, that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drums rum coming everywhere, so prepare, say a prayer, send the word, send the word to beware, we'll be over, we're coming over.
And we won't come back till it's over, over there, over there.